Good morning. My name is Luis. I'm a grateful believer in the Lord Jesus Christ. And this is our palace. This is our home. We get to gather just to worship Jesus Christ. Amen. So I'm going to read a passage in Mark 3, verses 20 through 35. So before I begin, I would like to pray so that the Lord would just open up our hearts and let me read his word. God, I thank you so much for this moment and this time where we get to encounter you and to invite you into our lives on a daily basis. We pray that this word will touch our hearts and open our hearts and our minds and souls, God, and look into you deeply. So we praise you in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. Mark 3, 20 through 35. Then he went home, and the crowd gathered again, so that they could not even eat. And when his family heard it, they went out to seize him. For they were saying, he is out of his mind. And the scribes who came down from Jerusalem were saying, he is possessed by Beelzebul, and by the prince of demons, he cast out the demons. And he called them to him and said to them in parables, how can Satan cast out Satan? If a kingdom is divided against itself, that kingdom cannot stand. And if a house is divided against itself, the house will not be able to stand. And if Satan has risen up against himself and is divided, he cannot stand but it's coming to an end. But no one can enter a strong man's house and plunder his goods unless he first binds the strong man, then indeed he may plunder his house. Truly I say to you, all sins will be forgiven, the children of man, and whatever blasphemies they utter, but whoever blasphemies against the Holy Spirit never has forgiveness, but is guilty of an eternal sin. For they were saying, he has unclean spirit. God, we just, we just thank you so much. Every moment, every aspect of our lives today, God. Father God, I just want to pray for our Pastor Cameron, that you would touch him, speaking to him, that your word become so alive in him, God, that you would give him a tongue of fire, to speak to us and we get to worship you for who you are and praise you for what you get to do in our lives today in Jesus name well um, I'm Cameron once again uh, it's so good to be with you um, this is one of those passages that you may have had this experience whenever uh, Luis just read it for us. You know, the, it's, it's a big passage and it goes on a little bit beyond even what Luis read. And your attention is likely to just go straight to this kind of one verse right there, kind of in the middle of it. You know, it's talking about an unforgivable sin. It reminds me of like, I, this has now become like a recurring thing. I think it's happened once here at Northeast, but it happened a few times at Dorf Hope Southeast. I had this one pair of pants I really liked. They're called Levi's commuter jeans and I ride my bike a lot and they're like moisture wicking and 
odor resistant, which it turns out is really important if you bike commute a lot in the city. And I wore them a lot. They had one fatal flaw. The fly was always falling down on these pants. And there was a minute where I was like wearing these pants a lot when I preached. And there was like two or three Sundays within a handful of times I preached where it was just fly down. Now, it didn't get worse than just fly down, thankfully. Uh, but it was obviously like my, my flies down. Uh, and I can't tell you, I, I was preaching and I had no idea this was going. In fact, I'm self-conscious right now. Okay, we're good. I'm preaching. I'm feeling good about it. And then I come off stage and there's like two people like waiting in the wings to kind of like talk to me. I'm like, man, spirit must be moving right now. This is awesome. And like, dude, your fly was down the whole time. <laughs> and uh, anyway, that's a, that's a real dynamic. There can just be this one little thing where you're like, you miss, you kind of miss the big picture because the fly's down. Uh, in this passage, we've got this big scene. We've got the crowds. We've got this whole dynamic with Jesus' family. It's super interesting. What's going on here? But right in the middle of it, there's this thing where Jesus utters, and it's serious. He's, he says, listen to me. There's a sin that cannot be forgiven. And rightly, all of our attention just goes, oh my gosh, what is going on here? And we just zoom in on that. And that's not wrong to do that. That's not wrong to do that, and we desperately need to understand what Jesus means by that, and we're going to discuss it, um, hopefully correctly. Um, but but, but the, the issue here is that this, this passage fundamentally isn't about this unforgivable sin. I, I think you'll see why. What this, it's, not, it's not answering the question primarily, what is the unforgivable sin? This question, the question this text wants to answer is, who is the real family of Jesus? And who gets to be in on that? So I promise we're going to get, we're going to answer the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit, unforgivable sin question. But first we have to talk about this massive concept of the family of God, which I think is actually the core of what's going on here. And, and, and from there we have to explore what it might mean for us here as Door of Hope Northeast, a local church here in Portland, what it might mean for us to think of ourselves as a family. And I've had to give this disclaimer before whenever uh, I've, I've, I've talked about this concept of the church as a family, because when I say the church is a family or the church ought to, in some respects, be like what you think of when you think of a family, I know that different reactions get sparked around the room. Um, a, a lot of this gets tied to how we've actually experienced family in our own lives. Um, for some of us, when I say the word family, what comes to mind for you is like nuisance, like a frustration that we're forced to endure at Thanksgiving or Christmas or something like that. For others of us, it's an idol. It's the thing that, whether we've identified it as such or not, it's the thing that we feel or have been made to feel that we have to have in order to be complete or satisfied or happy or whatever. And we have to acknowledge for some of us to just say the word family is to bring up an inherently painful idea, um, possibly tied to a history of abuse or neglect or just ongoing pervasive conflict that you can't get away from. Um, maybe dissolved relationships. Maybe when I say family, you think about the fact that you're, you don't have a relationship with your family and it's painful. Beyond those, 
I know that a lot of us, when we think about uh, family, like discussed in a religious context, it's scary because you instantly start thinking about like cults and stuff. And that's legit. That's legit. How often has that idea of we're a, we're a family been used to man- deeply manipulate and violate people? Um, and then there are some of us in here who just have like a generally healthy set of ideas and expectations around family. And if that's you, congratulations. And I mean that seriously. Like, that's awesome. That's the way it ought to be. <laughs> like, our families ought to be healthy indicators of, of what God is like and what, like, pointers to these kinds of beautiful truths. Uh, so that's awesome, if that's your thought. More than that, though, on the other hand, this, this teaching, it, when we get into it, it could be challenging for some of us, not because of our natural families, but because of our experiences within churches. Um, there are uh, all kinds of... Um, well, let me just say this. Um, Jesus and the other biblical authors, they give all these like, beautiful kind of, kind of grand pictures of what the Christian life together is, looks like. And, and, and some of us might be tempted to roll our eyes or even shake our fists because those words are nice at all, and all, but that's never been your experience. <laughs> You've never experienced the kind of beautiful, peaceful, self-giving, self-sacrificial life in community that Jesus is talking about. Maybe here in our church, it hasn't been that way. And if that's the case, that's tragic. And we just want to acknowledge it. That's tragic. So wherever you're coming from, I just want to take a second, acknowledge all that, and let's just kind of pray to God for a moment to kind of clear away some of that debris and let us maybe hopefully come at this, hear what he has for us kind of freshly, maybe self-consciously trying to set down some of that baggage so we can at least encounter it on its own terms and then go from there. Sound good? Let's pray. Father, we do just acknowledge family is a complicated idea for these reasons and for more that I didn't even mention. Um, And and Lord, we want to both acknowledge those realities. Lord, if there are people in this room who need healing and and to really process and work through some of those things. I pray that you would help them do that, Lord, both in community and um, wherever else, Lord, in in therapy, in counseling, um, just in relationship, in conversations with their families, and so on and so forth, Lord. But we pray that this morning, as as we engage this idea, what does it mean to be the family of Jesus in a sincere sense? You would help us just encounter you in some way without all that baggage hanging around our necks. Speak to us, Lord. Help us come to you with with clear eyes, Lord. Help us. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, if this passage is trying to answer that question, I think it is, who is the real family of Jesus, then it it starts by showing us three possibilities in these first couple of verses here. Um, we've, We've got three groups. We've got a crowd. We've got Jesus' biological family. And then we've got the scribes who represent kind of the formal religious leaders from Jerusalem. And, and Mark is, and we'll see it more clearly when we get to the end of this text, but Mark is kind of putting these up as potentials, potential answers to the question, who, who is the rightful family of God? So we see that Jesus went home. And this is, we, we just last week read about Jesus appointing the 12 disciples. So we assume these 12 are with him traveling back, probably to his ministry home, his new ministry hub in Capernaum. 
And the crowd gathered again, and that's typical. The word's getting out about Jesus. He's this miracle worker. He's this crazy, enigmatic, um, sort of intriguing teacher. Um, people are coming. And, and it says the crowds gathered again so that they could not even eat. So once again, Mark is continuing to, when he shows us the crowd, it's, almost, it's, it's becoming almost exclusively negative. Like they're crowding in on Jesus so bad that him and his disciples, they can't even eat their meal. They can't even eat their meal. So picture the scene. Jesus maybe is inside the house or maybe he's just in his hometown. The language is a little bit unclear. Um, and he's sitting and teaching, probably answering questions from some people. And, and we could imagine the 12 disciples kind of sitting around him in this kind of inner ring. But then there's, there's more people, in fact, a big crowd, people probably looking over one another's shoulders or kind of weaseling through, pushing in, trying to hear this Jesus. And it's becoming like legitimately distracting to the point where they can't even eat their meals. Like, hey, we need to eat, and they can't even do it. Um, so there's kind of a high-intensity kind of crowd energy uh, moment here. And so the first question is, maybe the crowd, maybe this gathered crowd of people is, is a good candidate for the family of God. But what we see here is that um, Mark, Mark is not interested in presenting the crowd here as a sign of like Jesus's ministry success. Like, oh man, the crowd's gathered, so he must be doing something right. That's not really the logic here. Um, it's, it's not really something to be celebrated. They're presented as a distraction. They're presented as someone who's just kind of inconveniencing Jesus and his purposes here. Um, they're interested, sure, but, but, but ultimately they're an inconvenience to Jesus. And this is important to note, specifically in our kind of cultural context, uh, because, man, we are often so seduced by the energy of a crowd, aren't we? Kind of a critical mass of people. We can assume that the greatest, where, where the greatest numbers are, there is kind of the most worthwhile things. That numeric success equals quality, uh, that might makes right. You could look at this from a bunch of different angles. But I don't know, probably all of us have some, in a city like Portland, there's probably a lot of you that are into things that are maybe not super mainstream. I imagine a lot of you have music that you're into that's like not successful, not popular. And it's, there's your, there's your little personal reminder every day that you listen to that and enjoy that, that public acclaim doesn't necessarily equal value. And it's actually that dynamic is at play in the family of God. Quite literally here, Jesus is not interested in maintaining this big crowd. He loves the individuals that make up that crowd, but he's not interested in that sort of movement. In fact, they've become a distraction. So that's, that's the evaluation Mark is kind of subtly painting of the crowd here. Who else do we have? Verse 21, we have Jesus' family. We're told later that it, it mentions his mother and his brothers later on in the passage. So at least his mom and his brothers. We're told elsewhere in scripture Jesus had sisters as well. We don't know exactly how big his family was, Mary's family, but these are effectively Jesus' half-siblings, right? So the family is there, at least his mother and brothers, and they go out to seize Jesus. They want to grab him and take him away from what he's actually doing. Why? Because they think he's crazy. They think Jesus is crazy. They're concerned that he's confused, that he's lost his mind, and they want to literally stop him from ministering at this point because they're like, oh my gosh, Jesus has gone off the rails. 
And I, you know, I don't know. They were probably also concerned for, they were concerned for him, but they're probably also concerned for their family honor, like in this honor-shame culture for Jesus to be out here kind of doing this weird stuff, inviting the criticism of the religious leaders. It's going to look bad for them as well. And I, you know, I don't know what your reaction to this is, if you're sympathetic with them or if you're just like, how could you try to stop Jesus from his ministry? But I, I just want you to seriously try to imagine for a moment, like, how wild this would be to be his family. We can get numb to the fact that this is, this would be crazy. So Mary is clued in. She had, she received visions from angels telling her like, oh, this is going to be like the one from God. This conception is from the Holy Spirit. This is crazy. And so she, she had some idea, but imagine being Jesus's brother or Jesus's sister living life alongside this kid who was sinless but probably no less annoying to you. You know what I mean? Like if you had a sinless sibling, they'd probably be just a constant source of annoyance to you, right? What is up with Jesus? Yeah, he's never mean to me or he doesn't mistreat me or whatever, but like, he's just, like, this guy is weird. I don't get it. What is up with him? Why is he always, like, why is he such a mama's boy? Or I don't know, whatever. Like, it would be an b- utterly bizarre thing to be the, fam- the human family member of Jesus, I think. What would that be like? And even if he was as good, and I contend he was, as the scriptures claim, he was utterly sinless. Nonetheless, when, when, when you get to this stage in his life, now he's 30, he's early 30s, he's going out, he's... he's teaching the things that he's teaching, he's performing these signs, and he's, he's becoming the enemy of the Jewish religious establishment. I mean, I don't know how you would respond any other way than panic and fear and anxiety and to try, Jesus, stop what you're doing. Quit. Come home. Come back to your carpentry job. Like, you were good at that. That's great. Let's just go, back. let's go do that. At the same time, I'll just Spoiler alert, we know at, at least that James, the brother of Jesus, went on to be a, 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 like a serious leader in the early church. And to me, that is one of the great evidences of, of the divinity of Jesus. For someone who lived in the family with Jesus, in the house with Jesus, to eventually be convinced, yeah, my, my little brother, or my older brother, I presume, actually, my older brother was actually the son of God. The things that he taught, they weren't crazy, they were actually true. Having lived, having seen him day in and day out to actually go, yeah, I think he was the son of God. I think he actually was raised from the dead. I think he's actually seated at the right hand of God on the throne of David. Could you imagine? That is compelling to me. Because it's the family members, it's the people who live in the house who have the closest, like, upfront personal view of what a person's character and integrity is actually like. And James said, I'll die for this Jesus, eventually. Not yet, not yet, presumably. Right now, he's in the Jesus is crazy phase. Um, so the point here is that Jesus' own blood family, they're not acting like the family of God. And Jesus is going to have some kind of controversial things to say later in the passage. But for now, he's saying, oh, they're not, they're not a good candidate here. And then finally, we have the scribes. 
verse 22, the scribes came down from Jerusalem, so they're representing from Jerusalem the temple and the formal Jewish religious system. These are, uh, it's not the exact same group as the Pharisees who've been in confrontation with Jesus, but they're connected, related, kind of representing largely the same interests. They came down to see what all this is about, and they say, he is possessed by Beelzebul. And by the prince of demons, he casts out demons. So they know that Jesus has been casting out demons. And they're not saying, this isn't real, or this is a mirage, or Jesus must be pretending, or, or that demon-possessed guy was a plant, you know? <laughs> like, like, it's all a show. They're saying, no, he casts out demons. But he does it by Satan himself. That's their claim. They have the worst reaction of all. That word Beelzebul is a name derived from an ancient Canaanite god, which translates to the Lord of the Flies. You remember that book about the society of, <laughs> of children? How ugly it got. I love that title. It's like mysterious and weird and gross. Uh, or you could, when you hear Lord of the Flies, you could think Lord of the Dung Pile. Lord of the Manure Pile, the flies swarming. It's this really grotesque image. And this, this title became a way to talk about the head of the evil spirit, Satan himself. And so they're accusing Jesus of being in league with the devil, that his miraculous power that they are not disputing is not from the Holy Spirit of God, but from the evil spirit of darkness, the spirit of the demons, the spirit of Satan himself. And just as a quick note, this is a sign here that like, being a religious expert, having religious expertise is no guarantee that someone will take a seat amongst the family of God. In fact, they're often his most vicious critics and opponents in the Gospels. And this, this, these three verses, they almost, I don't know if it maps exactly, but it's pretty close. It almost serves as kind of an illustration of if you've ever heard of C.S. Lewis's Trilemma, and I'll just quote this. This is, this is an extended quote from his book, Mere Christianity. I think it's really good. C.S. Lewis says this. He says, I'm trying here to prevent anyone saying the really foolish thing about that people, the really foolish thing that people often say about Jesus. I'm ready to accept Jesus as a great moral teacher, but I don't accept his claim to be God. Lewis is saying, that's the dumbest thing you can say about Jesus, that he's a great moral teacher, but not the son of God. I'll keep reading. He says, this is the one thing we must not say. A man who was merely a man and said the sort of things that Jesus said would not have been a great moral teacher. He would either be a lunatic on the level with the man who says he is a poached egg, <laughs> I love that, or else he would be the devil of hell. You must make your choice. Either this man was and is the son of God or else a madman or something worse. You can shut him up for a fool. You can spit at him and kill him as a demon or you can fall at his feet and call him the Lord and God. But let us not come with any patronizing nonsense about his being a great human teacher. He has not left that open to us. He did not intend to. And then Lewis, you skip ahead, Lewis concludes, Now it seems to me obvious that he was neither a lunatic nor a fiend. Consequently, however strange or terrifying or unlikely it may seem, I have to accept the view that he wasn't his God. Now, I don't know if his, if his uh, logical syllogism there is airtight or not, but, but I think on, on a simple practical level it works pretty well. For Jesus to say the things that he said, 
to do the things that he did, to make the claims that he did, I think he's ruling out the idea that, yeah, this guy has some good stuff to teach us if he is wrong. If he's claiming to be God in flesh, and he's wrong about that, don't listen to a word he says, nor the words of anyone else who would make a claim like that. Alternatively, maybe he's right. Those are the options. I think this passage is almost illustrating that. Maybe this is where he got it. I don't know. So that's the intro. Three candidates for the family of God. And then we take this little sidebar into this, this discussion Jesus has about these scribes and what they're saying about him. It says, he called them to him and he said to them in parables. He says, how can Satan cast out Satan? If a kingdom's divided against itself, that kingdom cannot stand. And if a house is divided against itself, that house will not be able to stand. And if Satan has risen up against himself and is divided, he cannot stand, but is coming to an end. Jesus' point, he's just these three little ways of saying, it makes no sense for me to be working against the works of Satan if I'm in league with Satan. Why would Satan be tearing down his own kingdom? If, if Satan is divided against himself, his house won't stand, his kingdom won't stand, his reign will be coming to an end. And my mind is corrupted every time I read this passage. If you're a Seinfeld fan, I just can't, every time I read this in the Bible now, I think of a George divided against himself cannot stand. If relationship George comes through that door, he will kill independent George. It's a good point, George. It's a good point, George. Why would Jesus be divided? Why would Satan be divided against himself using Jesus to tear down Satan's reign? That's the simple point Jesus is making there. The reality comes in the next verse. Jesus says, but no one can enter a strong man's house and plunder his goods. You can't go into somebody's house and take the things that belong to them unless you bind the strong man. Then indeed he may plunder his house. So Jesus is saying, you think I'm in league with Satan and Satan is somehow so disorganized that he's working against himself. He says, no, the actual case of it is that I'm the one who's strong enough to go and take what currently belongs to Satan. I have bound him. He has, he's no use against me. I am, my kingdom is overcoming the kingdom of Satan. I am plundering Satan's goods. And that's good news for us. And then... And then, here it comes, a warning. This is Jesus' commentary now on what, what the scribes are claiming. He says, truly, I say to you. That word truly in the Greek, it's, it's amen, truly. Listen to this. I'm saying, like, listen up. You see Jesus say, truly, I say to you. You lean in, you lean forward in your chair a little bit and say, all right, let's listen. Truly I say to you, all sins will be forgiven the children of man. And whatever blasphemies they utter, but whoever blasphemes against the Holy Spirit never has forgiveness, but is guilty of an eternal sin. For they were saying he has an unclean spirit. So what is going on here? What is going on here? Whoever blasphemes against the Spirit never has forgiveness, but is guilty of an eternal sin. So this is serious. And what, what I'm not going to sit here and go, oh, this, you know, wave this away. This isn't that big of a deal or whatever. Whatever this is, we need to take it deathly seriously and take Jesus at his word. 
But what's interesting is, I don't know if you ever saw this. I remember um, it was either Josh Wyatt or Tim Mackey was teaching this, past, this story from the Gospel of Matthew. Years ago, when we, there was just one door of hope, we were in this building, we were going through the Gospel of Matthew, and I remember one of them, I can't remember now, um, teaching, uh, teaching on this story, and at the time, there was kind of this popular thing going around on YouTube where, where basically atheists uh, were, were recording like selfie videos saying, I'm going to blaspheme against the Holy Spirit. Because just to show, like, I'm not afraid, I'm not afraid. Jesus said this is the unforgivable sin. I'm not afraid of eternal hell or whatever. Um, so they would look into their camera and they would curse at the Holy Spirit. You know, I'm not going to recite it here. But uh, they would curse at the Holy Spirit. They'd say, I blaspheme the Holy Spirit. And, you know, say all kinds of wild, wild stuff. <laughs> in their video and post it. And it was kind of this like small movement that started going and people kind of like saying, we're, we're, we're claiming our independence from the fear that a verse like this could produce. Um, well, what's, <laughs> what's interesting about this is that the scribes didn't do that. Whatever Jesus condemning, it wasn't someone turning on their, you know, their webcam and saying, I declare my cursing of the Holy Spirit. What did they actually say? They said, uh, he's, well, let me go back. Let's get it right. <laughs> um, the first thing they said was, he is possessed by Beelzebul. By the prince of demons, he cast out demons. And then Mark comes back and says, for they were saying, he has an unclean spirit. So that's interesting. They're, they didn't actually say anything about the Holy Spirit, did they? They didn't turn on their webcam and start cursing at the Holy Spirit of God. What is going on here? And why is this the blasphemy against the Holy Spirit according to Jesus? The crux of the issue has to do with how they are labeling the activity of the Holy Spirit of God in the life of Jesus the Messiah in their midst. Here's what I think is going on. This sin that will never be forgiven, that, that is an eternal sin, whatever, all the labels Jesus puts on it, this sin, I think, and I, I think this is what most, mo as I was studying, I think this is the most common view. This isn't novel. This sin is, is attributing the Holy Spirit's Messiah-authenticating, kingdom-bringing miraculous work. Remember, Jesus is coming. He's healing the sick. He's restoring sight to the blind. He's giving hope to the hopeless. In the case of the demon-oppressed and demon-possessed, he's bringing them liberation. There were people we, we read about in the other Gospels, I think connected to this story, were blind and mute and like totally cut off from their senses. In this case, due to demonic activity, and Jesus healed them. He brought peace back into their lives that these people could never have imagined. He brought the most beautiful like, picture of the restoration of the coming kingdom of God when he makes all things right. The resurrection where every like, sickness and piece of like, sin marring us is gone. And he's giving them a taste of it now. This is how the Holy Spirit of God was authenticating. The, the one hope you've all been waiting for is here. And the religious leaders say, that's Satan. You feel that? 
You feel the weight of that, actually? You just kind of put yourself in the story. It's, it's seeing the beautiful, like, work of the fairy spirit of God to demonstrate to the watching world that your one hope has come, Israel. Not just Israel, whole world. It's to look, this sin is to look at the Spirit's good, beautiful, true work through Jesus and to say it's the opposite. (laughs) To say this is Satan in our midst. This is evil in our midst. This is death in our midst. This is ugliness in our midst. It's to see what plainly is the good of all goods and to call it evil. That's, That's what they're doing. That's what they're doing. It, it, this sin is to willfully and deliberately cut yourself off from the only source of healing and forgiveness and grace and love and mercy and peace and beauty. To cut yourself off from the Jesus who saves by the power of the Holy Spirit. What's interesting is in Matthew's account of this story, he even says, all blasphemies will be forgiven, even against the Son of Man. Jesus is like, you can even curse me to my face. That'll be forgiven. But if you see the kingdom of God breaking in by the power of the Holy Spirit, freeing the most oppressed, <laughs> casting the demons out, bringing them healing, and you call that the work of Satan, you are be- there is no hope for you. That's what Jesus is saying here. And it makes sense, doesn't it? Doesn't it? it I have to say, it's not uncommon for Christians to read this passage and to kind of get struck with all kinds of anxiety. And maybe you did when we just read this for the first time. You're like, oh my gosh, there's an unforgivable sin. Have I done it? Did I do it on accident, maybe? I had a really bad day a couple years ago. I was saying a lot of things to God. Have I blasphemed the Holy Spirit? And, and to, if, if you're a Christian carrying anxiety, I, I want to try to relieve you. I want to offer you some peace Remind you the words of Jesus in John 6, 37. He says, all that the Father gives to me will come to me and whoever comes to me, I will never cast out. He will never cast you out if you come to him. Commentator James Edwards says, anyone who's worried about having committed the sin against the Holy Spirit has not yet committed it. For anxiety of having done so is evidence of the potential for repentance. There is, listen to this friends. There is no record in scripture of anyone asking forgiveness of God and being denied it for anything. Hear that if you're anxious about this. I'm not certain about this, but it may be to commit this unpardonable sin, you might need a time machine actually to go back to sit at the feet of Jesus and watch him in the flesh by the power of the Spirit doing these miraculous works and saying, that's Satan, and I, will, I am aligning myself diametrically opposed to it. That's the unforgivable sin, according to Jesus. So there you go. Let's keep reading. So he has this, this story with the scribes. He confronts them. In fact, he says, what y'all are doing is the one thing. And did you actually go back to that? Because we missed this too when we zoom in. Jesus says, I say to you, all sins will be forgiven the children of man. And whoever blasphemies, whatever blasphemies they utter, did you know that in ancient Israel, blasphemy was punishable by death? 
it, it, it received the death penalty. And so even in this extreme, like, serious statement, Jesus offers grace upon grace. He says, actually, in my economy, every blasphemy will be forgiven. There is just, even at Jesus' most condemnatory here, it is grace upon grace that flows from his lips. Let's not miss that. Okay, we move on. So, so we finish the story here. The story goes on. He has this little confrontation with the scribes, and then, he's, and then we, we're back to kind of remembering, oh yeah, we've got this crowd around. So his mother and his brothers came. Jesus' mother and his brothers, and they're standing outside. They sent to him and called him. So again, we, we imply that it's still this, like, we've got to get Jesus from, to stop doing all this crazy stuff. We've got to take him home, help him get well. And the crowd was sitting around him, and they said to him, your mother and brothers are outside seeking you. And Jesus does something really interesting here. He, he, um, he answered them, Who are my mother and my brothers? And looking about at those who sat around him, he said, Here are my mother and my brothers, for whoever does the will of God, he is my brother and sister and mother. So what's going on? After the confrontation with the scribes, we're back, to, we see the picture again. We've got Jesus, his disciples, the crowd, and now the family is on the outside. And I think that language is quite intentional. And Jesus puts the whole, I think the central question of this passage, who is actually my real family? You say my family wants me. Well, who's my family? Let's get specific. And, and I don't think Jesus is trying to be callously, like unnecessarily mean to his mom here. That's not the heart of Jesus. But, he, but nonetheless, it is, it is a scandalous thing to say. Because in, in, in ancient Jewish culture, like, the family was where you got your identity. It was your primary source of allegiance. And if you weren't, you didn't show allegiance to your family, that was a horrible scandal. The family came first for everybody. People regularly placed the good of their family over their own personal desires and goals. And there was no closer same-generation family bond than between siblings, between the brothers and sisters. Like, you did, like actually in this culture, brothers and sisters were, were largely closer relationally than even spouses, which is wild. I'm not saying that's right or wrong. I'm just saying that's, that's how it was. The family provided the surest basis for security, identity, stability. And family was everything. And Jesus says, who's my mother and my brother? right here. Whoever does the will of God. Jesus' point is that you don't have to be related by blood, which maybe isn't that scandalous for us, but in ancient Jewish culture, it may have been for many people. You don't have to be a religious expert either, because the scribes who should know Jesus most, they should be able to see him for what he is most clearly. They think he's in league with Satan. And you don't, and being part of an interested crowd doesn't do it either. Jesus says, my family are the ones who do the will of God. And I, I like first, I was curious, like, is there a good succinct summary of what it means to do the will of God? He's not saying sinless perfection. He's not saying everyone who is perfectly obedient in everything to me is the one, but listen to 
1 John 3, 21 through 23 says, Beloved, if our heart does not condemn us, we have confidence before God, and whatever we ask, we receive from him, because we keep his commandments and do what pleases him or do his will. And this is his commandment. Here's what John says. This is his commandment, that we believe in the name of his son, Jesus Christ, and love one another just as he has commanded us. You could even call that a paraphrase of the great commandment Jesus gave, to love God and to love neighbor as yourself. Believe in Jesus and love one another. Anyone who will do that, they get to be called part of Jesus' family. And so this is a theme. We're going to have to stop today, but this is a theme that's going to start to get picked up more and more through, through uh, Mark. And actually, Mark chapter 10 might be my favorite chapter in the entire Bible where he's going to bring this really into focus. But for now, we get this stunning idea that, that anyone can get draft, grafted into the family of Jesus Christ, the place to, uh, a place at the table to call themselves Jesus' mother, Jesus' brother, Jesus' sister. And any external or any sort of like, I don't know, any sort of qualifier that you think you need to get a seat at that table, Jesus has just blown it up and he said, no. You just believe me, find a place in my family, love one another. And the, the, we don't have time to fully get into it, but the implication here is that Jesus is building a new family. He's building a new family here. And this, this isn't just so that you get to sit there and go, oh, that's a nice idea. I get to be family with Jesus. That's a beautiful privilege. But he's saying there's actually practical implication that, that spills out into our church here in the year 2021 that he is building a family of people united around him that are going to picture what he is like to the world. And actually, quite intentionally, as we head into the fall, we're going to be kind of revisiting this idea of what does it mean for us as, you know, we've been scattered. We're still scattered to agree. If you're watching online, we love you so much, but we know our people are still scattered. Some are here, some are, some still haven't been back to church and they have their reasons. Uh, but we're going to be revisiting that question of like, what does it mean for us to begin to regather as, as COVID, God willing, starts to, you know, move away what does it mean for us to be a faithful community? And part of the answer to that is going to be in this question. What's it mean to be the family of Jesus with any kind of integrity? What does a relationship between the brothers and sisters of Jesus look like in the here and now as a foretaste of what it's going to look like in the age to come? And there was one commentator that I, I just thought this was so beautiful. You know, normally I might try to like that might spur me to put it in my own words, but I thought I'm not going to say it better than him, so I'm going to let him say it. Here's what I think the implications are in the words of, who was this? David Garland. David Garland. He says, the church, to, to live this out, to be the family of Jesus, pragmatically, the implications are the church needs to seek out the lonely and not only help them mend their families, but create new family relationships in the bonds of faith. Family ministry programs should not focus on ministering only to the nuclear family and meeting its needs, but should use the family to minister to and include others who are without family. The families in our churches can become means of ministry to those beyond the bounds of our nuclear families. Jesus' words about the family here can become good news for everybody. 
It strengthens the nuclear family by helping it to establish bonds beyond the cloistered walls of the family room by giving it a sense of purpose and ministry. Those who are family-less may find comfort from this word. The special needs child waiting for adoption. The homeless, mentally ill young adult. The teenage mother on her own at age 16. The aging adult who's outlived his children. The businesswoman trying to survive emotionally an ugly divorce. The struggling single mother who needs temporary foster home for their children. The goal of Christians in marriage is not to make a house, an island of intimacy, shut off from others in the world, but to make a home for humankind. Through families, the church is to extend the kind of accepting love that transforms a runaway slave like Onesimus into one whom Paul claimed as his own child and as a brother to his former master. The kind of embracing love that transforms the runaway and throwaway children in our culture into, quote, our children. I love that. The implication of what Jesus is saying here is, is I am building a new family, and if the closest kind of relationship in the ancient world was between brothers and sisters, it is no coincidence that from this point forward, when they start talking about the church, the biblical authors, what do they call one another? Brothers and sisters. Brothers, I write to you. Brothers and sisters, I write to you. And that kind of becomes like a hokey Christianese thing to talk about, oh, my brother in Christ. But if we let the power of that hit us, that we actually have been brought into a new family that runs deeper and thicker than even blood relationships. And that that's good news for those who, for whom their blood relationships are all messed up and ugly and broken. Because we've got something that transcends that and at its best becomes a picture of the heavenly community we're all going to be a part of in the age to come. That's our call, Door of Hope Northeast. Here, as a local church, 2021, Portland, Oregon, we're going we're gonna to talk about this a lot, a lot, a lot, that this is part of why Jesus even invented this thing called the church. That he could have these kingdom outposts, but even more than that, these family outposts. The world goes, oh my gosh, Jesus is real, and he's not just real, he's good, if that's the kind of family he's building. So, a lot has been left unsaid here. <laughs> you know, we had a lot of ground to cover. We're going to have to stop here, but I just, I just put that there. We're going to revisit this idea in Mark. Door of Hope, we are the, if you are in Christ, if you have trusted him, you are the daughter, you are the son, you are the brother, the sister, the mother, the father of Jesus. And if you're that, and other people are that too, that means we're a family here. May he empower us to live that out. And over the coming months and years, may we lean more and more into what that means. Amen? Amen.